Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 624 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday, March 15, 2011, and I'm back. I'm down here in Arlington again. Uh, you're not listening to a show that I recorded a week in advance for you. Uh, we made our recent run up to the... Uh, I'm going to have to stop calling it the bug out location. I'm going to start calling it the Arkansas Homestead because that's what it's about to be. Uh, we took about half of our stuff with us. We still have about half of our stuff here. Uh, we still probably have to give away half of what's left to get to get our household to where it'll you know, all kind of merge back together uh, with the redundancy that we'd created. Uh, but it was a good trip, and one of the things I wanted to do on that trip was find an office. I have not done that yet. I'll tell you a little bit about the trip in a minute. Uh, and what's today's show going to be? Well, since Monday's show was an interview with Jason Akers, who's one of my favorite folks out there, um, today's show is going to be your email feedback show. So if you want to get a, a uh, piece on a show like today, you can send an email to uh, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and I'm going to start doing something different today. Okay. If you are sending me a question, I want you to put, as always, in the subject line, question for Jack. If you are sending me a news article or some kind of commentary or a YouTube, even if it's a video. In fact, I'll tell you what. If it's an article with a link, I want article for Jack. If it's a video with a link to something like YouTube or something like that, video for Jack. So from now on, I know this is complicated. First time I ever did it. But question for Jack is for questions. This is in the subject line. Um, article for Jack is if it's an article and video for Jack is it's a video and maybe that will help me sort these for these types of shows a little bit better I asked last week about maybe doing less of this type of show and doing more of the call-in shows and the opinions overall were people preferred the email shows so the call-in shows aren't going away uh, but we're obviously not going to cut back on the email shows if that's what you guys like uh, so, um, again, today we'll do the email feedback show. Before we do that, though, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Emergency Essentials, available at their website, www.bepreparedcom Emergency Essentials does exactly what their website would make you think they do. They help you be prepared for anything that can come your way. Really specializing in long-term storage food and many other emergency planning and disaster supplies. Check out emergency 
Emergency Essentials today. And remember, they're not just a website with a lot of stuff you can buy from them. They also have a ton of information, especially on things like getting started and planning and doing uh, you know, caloric planning for your long-term food storage and things like that. So check them out today. Again, BePrepared.com. That's Emergency Essentials. Next up today is Knife Kits. I love Knife Kits because they help anybody, even a novice like me, uh, be able to make your own knives. See, they kind of have a, a system here where you can either be buying raw materials, like some raw handle-making material, raw, raw steel blanks and things like that, or you can be buying kind of a true kit that's almost like a snap-together model where you're doing some final fitting and sharpening and maybe some customization so that... Anybody from the beginner to the advanced bladesmith can use KnifeKits.com to make truly unique, one-of-a-kind knives. So check out KnifeKits today. And remember, they even have mammoth tusk handle material. Yes, mammoth tusk. Not sure exactly how they get it, but uh, I think it's pretty cool that you can get that there. Last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. Do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get about 20 videos by me that are available nowhere else. You'll get over $100 worth of ebooks for free. You'll get discounts to 25 participating vendors, and I will be adding more great discounts for you in the coming months. So, again, it comes out to about $0.18 cents an episode, $50 a year, to support the Survival Podcast. So at the end of today's show, if you think that was worth $0.20, cents, consider joining the MSB if you have not already done so. And one thing I want to add real quick here at the end, BulkAmmo.com, one of our great sponsors, is doing a really cool promotion. And all you got to do to participate in it is visit their Facebook page and like their Facebook status. Tell your friends about it, and you could win some really cool stuff. I'll put a link to that in today's show notes as well. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic today. So I do want to tell you a little bit about Arkansas, what went on this time. Um, and basically the big story is I looked for an office and I have not found one yet. Uh, so I'm probably going to have to run back up there before our next big family run and look at some places and make it dedicated to doing that. It was also my wife's birthday while we were away. So uh took her horseback riding at a place that's uh, probably about a 15-minute drive from our house but really is only about a mile and a half away as the crow flies. But there's a big old mountain with no roads in the way. So it was an enjoyable trip. We got a lot accomplished, and we are really close now to being completely out of here. We'll have the painting and the carpeting done as we're getting the rest of the stuff out of here. But the big thing left to do now is find an office because I've just determined that satellite Internet is not sufficient for what I do, and um, especially on a daily basis in good times. I won't be able to bring you guys the quality programming you've come to expect, and I want to make it better, uh, not just maintain it. So I'm looking for something really cool. The other thing I had problems with, some of the places I found were okay as far as the space, but they were too close to roadways with too much noise. So I do have some prospects, and I'll be going back up there to locate the Survival Podcast Global Headquarters. And I put out a thing on uh, Facebook uh, right before I left. And there was a lot of that. I said, what do you think we should call our new headquarters office? And uh, a couple of the ones that I thought were really creative that people on Facebook came up with, one was the Ant Hill or the Ant Mound or the Ant Farm. I thought those were all kind of cool. The beekeepers all suggested the hive. Some said the survival pod. One guy got kind of creative with an acronyms and said instead of ESPN, you know, for the sports network, it would be TSPN, the survival podcast network. Um, and uh, one guy even suggested miles from ass clowns. There was about 120 different suggestions. I thought it was really cool. That's the kind of thing we do just for fun on Facebook once in a while. So uh, do consider uh, following our fan page on Facebook. That's available at facebook.com forward slash 
Survival Podcast. All right, let's go ahead and take the uh, the first email from a listener today. And uh, there's a lot eventually that we're going to get to on the uh, on the Japanese earthquake and then the tsunami following it. But we're going to start in order, so obviously that happened while I was away. And I'm not going to talk about that a tremendous amount today, other than the questions that have come in or the uh, commentary that's come in on it. Uh, because I'm going to do something later this week, maybe early next week on it, as we have more information about what's really going on. And I think there's going to be huge lessons from that. But I think most of what we're going to learn right now is that it's business as usual for the media. All right, let's go ahead and take the uh, the first one today. This comes from Greg, and that's Greg of RV-103, the blog that uh, I kind of gave to him as a... Uh, had that set up for him as a early retirement gift when he retired from NASA because he was such a good friend of the show. Anyway, um, this is an article on The Telegraph, which is a U.K. publication, and this is the title, U.S. Farmers Fear the Return of the Dust Bowl. And it's not maybe for the reason you would think, like the complete abuse of our soil and uh, and the fact that we export more topsoil than pretty much anything else the United States exports today. It's really all about the water, and all about something I've been telling you about since 2008 and uh, has been going on for a lot longer. And yet America doesn't seem to understand at all. This is by Charles Lawrence. And I'll read some of the article to you here. There is not much to be happy about these days in happy Texas. Main Street is shut, shuttered, is shuttered? But for the happy National Bank. I, I don't get that. Shuttered? I guess that means that all the shutters are drawn. They've never heard that uses a verb before. Slowly but inexorably disappearing into the high plains wind that turns to dust. The old picture house, the cinema has closed. Tumbleweed rolls into the still corners behind the grain elevator, soaring prairie cathedrals that spoke of prosperity before they were abandoned for a lack of business. Happy's problem is that it has run out of water for its farms. I want to read this to you. I want to read that one line to you again because it may be the most important line here, for people that can't understand what I mean when I say we're running out of water. When I say we're running out of water, I'm not saying you're going to go turn the faucet on and no water is going to come out at all. Read that line again. Happy's, and I guess it's hard to understand that the town's named Happy, even though it's a very unhappy place. Happy's problem is that it has run out of water for its farms. That's what I'm talking about. Its population dropping 10% a year is down to 595 the name which brings a smile for miles around and plays in faded paint on the fronts of every shuttered business, Happy Grain Inc., Happy Game Room, has become an irony tinged with bitterness. It goes back to the cowboy days of the 19th century. A cattle drive north through Texas panhandle to the railheads beyond has been running out of water, steers dying on the hoof when its cowboy stumbled on a watering hole. They named the spot Happy Draw for the water. Now Happy is the harbinger. Uh, potential dust bowl unseen in America since the Great Depression. It was a booming town when I grew up, Judy Shipman, who manages the bank, says. We had three restaurants, a grocery, a plumber, an electrician, a building contractor, a doctor. It's funny how that's booming, and they had a doctor, a building contractor, a grocery. We had so much fun growing up, like all the townsfolk. She knows why the fun is gone. It's the decline of the water level, she says. In the 1950s, a lot of wells were drilled. And all the water went down. Now you can't farm the land. Those wells were drilled into a geographic phenomenon called the Ogala Aquifer. It's an underground lake of pristine water formed between two and six million years ago in the Paucean Age 
when the tectonic shifts that pushed the Rocky Mountains skywards were still active. The water was trapped below the new surface crust that would become the semi-arid soil of the plains, dusty and dry. It stretches all the way down the eastern slope of the Rockies from the Badlands of South Dakota to the Texas Panhandle. It does not replenish. Let me read that again. It does not replenish. That means it doesn't fill back up. Happy is the canary in the coal mine because the Ogala is deepest in the north, as much as 300 feet in the more fertile country of Nebraska and Kansas. In the south, though, the Panhandle and over the border to New Mexico, it's 50 to 100 feet. And around Happy, 75 miles south of Amarillo, it's now 0 to 50 feet. The farms have been handed over to the government's Conservation Reserve Program, or CRP, to life fallow in exchange for grants. That's farmers' welfare, although they hate to think of it as that. All right, I'm going to let you read the rest of the article if you want to because it's quite long, but here's what I want to point out. Underneath the central part of the United States lies this Ogala Aquifer. And the Ogala Aquifer is, as the article stated, an underground freshwater sea. That one, We just had all these earthquakes, right? So this is right up our alley today. One tectonic plate slid underneath the other tectonic plate, and it pushed up this great, huge, beautiful scenery we now call the Rocky Mountains. Well, when one slid under the other and made those mountains, in the plain to the east of the mountains was formed a great big underground ditch. A ditch bigger than you can possibly imagine, stretching from South Dakota to, to Texas and New Mexico. And into that ditch went trillions and trillions of gallons of fresh water, the largest reserve of fresh water in the world. Now, when man first came here, obviously he didn't really understand that, nor the Indian, nor the cowboy, nor the early North American settler comprehended this. But people did know to drill for water, but in most places this thing is very, very deep and beyond the drilling capabilities uh, of, that people had up until modern times. So back in the, in the 30s we had what we called the Dust Bowl, and that's where we had a drought. And farmers were farming the Great Plains back then without the, the advantage of the Ogala Aquifer. See, I'm trying to make this real for you. I'm trying to put this in perspective for you instead of being a dry article. So they only could do so much, but they could do a lot because the soil was really, really fertile, and they were farming at the time with the Times technologies, and each farm was relatively a small concern because you didn't have giant combines, and they did things like contour plowing and things like that, instead of just straight plowing, and they did what they could with what they had, and it went very, very well. In fact, in the 20s, one of the best businesses you could get into was going out into the, the Midwest somewhere, getting a plot of land and growing some wheat. It was one of the biggest booms in the history of the, of the United States ever. And then, about the 1930s, we got a drought. Even for a relatively dry area, a drought. <clears throat> and because of all the plowing and all the new agriculture that had gone on, coupled with the drought, we got the Dust Bowl. The dust clouds went up in the air, and we had huge dust storms, and the land was laid fallow, and people suffered in the middle of an already Great Depression. We all know this story. Well, eventually they figured out if you drilled a hole deep enough in this whole area, anywhere, you would get to this amazing supply of water. And you could start pumping it, and all of a sudden it didn't matter if it rained. And now we could go full tilt bore with farming this area. So we did. And not understanding at the time that we first started tapping this resource, it's not an infinite resource. It's a finite resource. It does not replenish. 
It doesn't fill up. The water was literally pinned under the ground. When one plate slid across another plate, you could imagine the earthquakes that must have caused. There wasn't really any people here to experience it, but that's what happened. So when that water's dry, it's gone. To put it in perspective, Happy Texas was maybe a few miles off the shore of this lake. If we had removed the, the covering ground and brought this thing to the surface so you could see it for what it is, a lake running from southern Texas to almost, to almost Canada. This huge lake with a, with a shore miles and miles and miles to the south of Happy Texas, that shoreline has now moved all the way up to Happy. And Happy is now at the shoreline with little sub-pockets of water around it as we suck this thing dry. And the people in the northern United States where the water is much deeper are sucking and sucking and sucking and sucking. But there's going to be little places all around that shoreline that start to just decay and decay and decay in places that have produced massive amounts of food for us in the past and have had massive prosperity for, their, for the townspeople around there are going to dry up and blow away in a new Dust Bowl. It probably won't look exactly like the old Dust Bowl because it will come in pieces, parts over time. And that will allow the land to hopefully heal itself with some native vegetation that used to grow there before anybody was pumping the Sogala Aquifer. But what it means for us is more expensive and less abundant food supply yet again. So I know I went a long time on that one, but it's important we understand it. So hopefully in the future when I talk about, I'm talking about anything with food shortages and I mention the Ogala, maybe now you'll understand what I'm saying when I say we'll run out of water at some point. Let's go ahead and take another one. So um, we got another email here with a bunch of easy, quick ones to do. Um, this is from Rob in uh, Michigan. Rob says, want to get your thoughts on storing loaded gun magazines. I have heard that this is no good for the springs. Is there any truth to this? Um, what can happen with, with magazines, or if you really want to upset the YouTube audience, clips, right? Because a clip and a magazine are different. But a ma let's be fair, magazine. Um, what can happen is, as you store them loaded for a long enough time, the springs basically develop memory. And that's just a fancy way of saying they get weaker. So their ability to feed rounds into the chamber is diminished. And it's not really a problem if you store rounds in magazines and then do a, a rotation. So it would be really a bad idea for, let's say you had an AR or a 45 1911 or a Glock 19 or, or whatever. Okay, But let's say we have our AR. We have a dozen magazines for it to load up all 12 of those magazines and keep them loaded all the time. Odds are that eventually if you go to run, uh, run those magazines, you're going to have problems with feeding because those springs are going to become weakened over time. If you keep, let's say, four of them loaded and about every two weeks to one month you unload them and, and load another four and then another two weeks to a month later you unload them and, and put them into another four, and keep doing that so that the magazines are getting a month to two months of rest in between being loaded for a couple weeks to a month, you're probably never going to have any problems at all. I mean, that's what they're designed to do. They're designed to hold ammo. It's the duration that becomes an issue. And it's really important that you do rotate your magazines. And for you law enforcement officers out there, some of you guys are the worst about this. A lot of times, department maybe will issue you two mags in your, your, your sidearm. And a lot of officers, especially new officers that don't make a lot of money early on in their, their career, um, won't go out and buy a couple more mags. 
And, uh, you know, law enforcement training is good and bad at the same time. And I, I think it's weak on the firearm side. Uh, and a lot of the firearms trainers that I've talked to have, that have been law enforcement officers themselves have told me this, that it's weak on that side in a lot of departments. So maybe you don't get this. And this is so important because it can cost you your life. If you've been carrying around those two mags of 9 mil for like six months, man, you need to get some new mags. You need to take them down to the range. You need to run them a few times and make sure they run right. And you need to start rotating them. And in fact, if, I'll tell you what, if you have a mag that's been loaded for six months or more, um, at least test it and possibly consider replacing it altogether. That is not the way to store your ammo. So it's not that it, it's bad to keep ammunition in your magazines. It's how long they're there without being rotated and how much memory those springs can develop. Um, next one, he says, also want to let you know that the Android Marketplace has apps that allow you to listen to police and emergency scanners. I think this would be a valuable tool in the event of an emergency. For you iPhone users like me, there's also one for you. You can put in police scanner. Um, I'll see if I can find the one I use for the iPhone and put a link in today's show notes. It's actually really cool. And, I mean, you can listen to anything. I'd be sitting here in Texas and listening to LAPD. Uh, I think it's really something we can use when maybe emergencies are breaking out that are not in our backyard to see what's really going on. And sometimes it's just flat entertaining. So that is a cool one. Another one, he says, uh, Finally, in a recent episode, you made some comments regarding survival movies. I must insist you watch The Road in the Book of Eli for the portrayals of disaster aftermath. Also, the right... Also, the movie Right and Your Door for a story of a couple trying to survive a dirty bombing attack in L.A. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Jack. Keep up the good work. Rob, Rob, I don't know if you're the guy that right before Christmas sent me the road in the book of Eli from Amazon, but if it's you or any other listener out there, I apologize for not watching them yet. Um, it was an unexpected gift, and if I don't remember which person sent it to me, but whoever did, thank you very much. I will get to them. I have been busier than the proverbial one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest lately, uh, but I, both books are high on my list of two, or both uh, movies are on my high on my list to watch. Um, especially the Book of Eli. That just seems like a cool movie. All right, the next one is from Kevin, and Kevin says, I live in southwest Louisiana, have 10 acres, and will eventually be living on. Permaculture is new to me within the last six months, and I'm stoked about converting my 10 acres to a food forest. Uh, start with uh, your zone one and your zone two, and then pick an area for a food forest and work on maybe a half an acre at a time uh, with the plan for the whole thing, Kevin, but don't try to do all 10 acres at once. It's way overwhelming if you do it that way. So break it into sectors and design, just like they teach you in the permaculture design manual, and go in pieces. But start with your one and two zones first, uh, because that's going to be the things that you're going to use every day. <clears throat> Even my wife is totally on board with this. Six kids. Wow, six kids. The more we produce ourselves, the better. You can put them six kids to work, man. I have a long way to go, but I'll get there. My question is, what types of amaranth is best for my climate? Is it storable long term? What can I use it for? Thanks in advance. I appreciate all you do to educate and inspire people and start doing for themselves. Um, I don't know what kind of amaranth is going to be best for your area. I can tell you the two varieties of amaranth, Kevin, that I personally have kind of settled on is what I like to grow. And your climate and my climate are not that much different, so they should probably do well there. First one is Hopi Red Dye. And I use that mainly for the greens. So I cut the leaves off and use them in salads and stir fries and things when they're really little. When they grow up to about a foot, I'll actually cut the whole plant 
and braise them, and I let some grow full size to produce more grain so I can grow more amaranth. And what I've learned is that the better your system is set up and the more of it you grow, the more of it will grow all by itself next year. It just keeps coming back. It is an annual. You're not talking about permaculture. We usually think of perennials. I want to drive home. Your amaranth will grow, it will produce seed, and it will die. And it will do that every year. But in time, you can get it to reseed itself effectively. So the red dye um, can also be used for obviously making dye. That's why it has that name. And you can eat it, the grain. You just get less amount of grain per plant. So I don't really consider it a grain variety. Um, the grain variety that I grow is called Golden Giant. And last year I had eight plants. And from those eight plants, I got almost seven pounds of grain. And you can use that grain the way you would use any gluten-free grain. So it can be an adjunct to a gluten uh, flour, like a wheat flour, to make bread. It can be, there's so many things you can do with amaranth. It can be eaten almost like more like a cereal. It can be added to muffins and things like that unground because it's just a little tiny seed with a great nutty texture. You can basically pop it. You get a nice, uh, well-seasoned cast iron pan and get it good and hot. And then you drop it in, and it almost immediately pops like a little mini popcorn, kind of like a parched popcorn. And you just eat that directly. You can bread things with it. I mean, it's it's a grain. Can you store it long term? Absolutely. It stores, you know, about as well as any any seed type of grain would store. So comparable to like uh, quinoa uh, or millet or something like that. So it's you know. That's the best I can do for you there. What I would do, seed for amaranth is pretty inexpensive. Buy yourself four or five varieties. Go through catalogs like Baker Creek, Seeds of Change, the Seed Savers Exchange, uh, Peaceful Valley uh, Farms, uh, High Mowing Organic. Go through all the great providers of this stuff. And pick out four or five varieties that you think you'd like. And plant them and see which ones do best. And find the ones that are doing best for your area. And once you get them established, obviously, since you can harvest the grain, you'll never have to buy seed again. So make the make the uh, the purchase early on and see what thrives best in your area. And I could advise that for a lot of things, not just amaranth, for a lot of folks, not just people in southwest Louisiana. Um, next one comes to me from Perry, and Perry says. Jack, I found this on a Fox News website. So do you think the government would have even mentioned pink oil if it hadn't been for WikiLinks? All the more reason to get out of debt ASAP Perry in uh, Maryland. Well, um, this is one I think we've actually covered before. WikiLinks. U.S. believes Saudi Arabia is running out of oil by Jeremy Korinizki, uh, which was published back in February, February 9th. Uh, it's a short article, so I'll read it, but I, I have a really different reason for reading this today that I want to go into a little bit with the mob mentality uh, that builds up around what I call ultra-patriotism with no brains. Okay, I'm a patriot. If you listen to the show, you know that. I'm, I'm gonna love America. I love our Constitution. I love what this nation is supposed to stand for. But I'm not a blind patriot that believes everything my government does is good. That, that's called blind patriotism, you know. That's, that's ultra-patriotism with no brains. Let me read this first to you. Peak oil, according to Wikipedia, uh, is the point in time when the maximum rate of global petroleum extraction is reached. 
Okay, that's not according to Wikipedia. They just put that in Wikipedia. That's what peak oil is. This guy's not really winning me over uh, with Pulitzer Prize winning flair here. After which the rate of production enters in a terminal decline. Opinions vary on where the world will, when the world will actually reach a peak oil scenario. But the new report detailed by Julian Assange's infamous WikiLeaks website indicates the United States believes it's starting, staring us right in the face as early as 2012. Maybe that's what the Mayan calendar is all about. Don't bet on it. Uh, it may not exactly be the end of the world as we know it, but if the report is accurate, it could mean a death to a number of popular vehicle segments, namely gas-guzzling sport utility vehicles, heavy-duty pickup trucks, poss possible even the mainstream performance car. Uh, electric and hybrid Mustang and Camaro models might not look so bad in the very new future. Uh, so I think we're seeing his greeny stripes here. Uh, the revolutionary report centers around media between Sadad al-Husseini and geologist and former head of exploration at Aramco, state-owned natural oil company of Saudi Arabia and U.S. officials. Husseini, an expert on the subject, suggests that Saudi Arabia doesn't have that much oil left, as the country wants us to believe, and it's unlikely to continue producing at its current rate of 12.5 million barrels a day. None of this is to say the world has run out of our oil, far from it, but it does mean Saudi Arabia, the largest country in the Middle East, and the country that thought by experts to hold about one-fifth of the world's proven total petroleum reserves, won't be able to provide enough oil to keep the world operating as it does today. If nothing else, this report gives us reason to believe oil prices won't stay nearly as low as they currently are, and that large-scale price increases could happen sooner rather than later. Thanks for the tip, Clinton. Um... Now, you might think I'm going to go off into a big thing on peak oil right now. Well, no. You guys can take this for yourself and figure out what you think peak oil means. I'll give you a little commentary on it. It's more about WikiLeaks. See, a really good friend of mine recently uh, posted uh, some of the things that are being suggested to do as punishment to Julian Assange on his Facebook page. And I really like this guy, and he wasn't saying one thing or another. He was reporting it. Some of his commenters really pissed me off. And here's why. Give him the death penalty. He cost Americans their lives. This kind of thing. Get a rope. Things like that. All right? Blind, ignorant, stupid, nonsensical, bullshit patriotism based on reports from things like MSNBC and Fox News. You have to think for yourself. All of these people, but this costs American lives. Really? You know, here's the thing. I've looked through, and there's thousands and thousands of thousands of them, to be fair. But I've looked through a lot of these cables, as they're called, from the Wikilinks dump. And I can't find anything that says, you know, operative uh, Joe Blow is currently in Afghanistan under the pseudonym Joe, Joe Non-Blow and is uh, working inside an uh, Al-Qaeda organization. No, it's stuff like this. It's stuff like this. So, as I said when I first talked about this, when I was asked a lot about it, I, before I opened my mouth, I read what the damn thing said. I did some research into what was going on, and here's how I feel. Julian Assange did something, really, it's illegal, I think, maybe, I'm not sure. But the private in the army that gave him the information definitely broke military code, definitely broke military law, and definitely should be subject to UCMJ. And I think that's who they want to put to death, these, these, uh, these idiots on my buddy's Facebook page, who I won't name because he didn't do it, and I don't want to give him a bad rap, okay? Um, but the people commenting, kill him, death penalty, cost American lives. But when I asked repeatedly, 
Tell me one piece of information that cost an American his life from this information. One. No. No answer. Well, one that might have no answer. One that revealed something that blew it up. No. Nothing. Why? Because that's not what it's about. It's about shit like this. Our government not being straight with us. Our government knowing that we're going to be dealing with a problem like this and saying, don't worry, everything's super. Please vote for me again. So my bigger message here, and this is so important, because I get so many emails every day from you guys, I am outraged at this. I can't believe that this happened. I'm never shopping with store XYZ again. I'm never buying brand ZYX again. I'm never doing this. I'm not going to this state. These people, and you know what? 90% of the time, these emails that I get forwarded to me from you guys about how evil somebody or something is, including the, the chief ass clown in charge, President Obama, you know, he redecorated the, 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 the uh, White House in the Muslim garb, uh, didn't put his hand on his heart when they played uh, the uh, national anthem, because they were playing hail to the chief in the picture. He's not going to salute himself. You know, all of these things that get people up in a fume and up in anger that are just false. They're just not what the representative is. The latest one, um, these ass clowns from NPR that said some pretty stupid things. But if you go to The Blaze right now, you'll find out that, um, and if you don't know what happened, one, this guy, I can't remember his name now, but he does stings. He's the guy that did the stings on like um, uh, the, uh, what do you call it, with the, uh, the, the, the uh, acorn. With the, you know, getting, helping people get loans and stuff that they don't qualify for. The same guy, he went into this thing with, uh, with NPR executives and pretended to be, um, they had these people pretend to be part of the Muslim Brotherhood and got these people from NPR to say some pretty despicable things because they thought they were in a friendly audience that would be open to their views. But in the end, the tape that was released was completely misleading because they went in and edited out parts. So even though they had them dead to rights with being bad, they, they couldn't stand that it wasn't worse, so they made it look worse. And we need to think beyond that. We need to read. We need to think. We need to investigate. And my challenge to you with this WikiLeaks thing, if it ever comes up with anybody, whether it's online or offline, I want you to simply ask the question, who died? Who, who was lost anywhere in the world? What op was, was, was ruined because of this? Tell me one. What life was put at risk? What life was cost? And then, did you know that the type of information that was in there was more like, hey, Saudi Arabia has been lying to us about how much oil we have. Hey, we've been trying to strong arm Ireland and Iceland to take loans that they don't want to take and to put themselves into positions they don't want to be in. We've been spying on Iceland. This is the type of information that's actually been released. And how is that costing the lives of our troops around the world? And if it did, I'd like to know. So please tell me one. Just one place where it actually happened. And see if you get an answer. And to um, to answer the original question that came to us from Rob in, uh, in Michigan. Uh, it wasn't Rob in Michigan. This was, uh, this was uh, Perry. Uh, Perry, you said, do you think the government would have mentioned peak oil if it hadn't been for WikiLinks? Uh, the answer is no, because they didn't. They knew. They knew for a long time. They had the information for a long time. They told no one. Why? Because your government is not honest with you. 
And there's probably a lot of information in the WikiLeaks that, um, you know, is information would have been better if it didn't come out. But my point today is, now that it's out, we need to be going through it with a fine-tooth comb. We need to be finding every example like this, and we need to be going to our government, and we need to go, hey, what the hell? Why are you doing this? Why are you taking these actions? Why is the Federal Reserve acting as the global loaning organization to the entire world? Why are we sending money to Egypt for water projects to rebuild mosques? Hey, why are we doing these things? Not saying we shouldn't even be. I want, I'd like an explanation, please. Let's use the information since it's out anyway. It's like when a person gets drunk, gets in a car rack, kills themselves. No matter how much you wish they were still here, if they're a donor, you take out their heart and you give it to someone that can use it. You take out their lungs and you give it to someone that can use it. You take their liver, if there's anything left of it, and you give it to someone who can use it. Well, WikiLeaks has happened. It's done. Let's focus on the information and let's not be stupid, let's not be ignorant, and let's not be blindly patriotic to anything. It's great to love your nation. I sure as hell do. But it's also loving your nation to protect it and defend it from enemies within and outside. And some of our biggest enemies within are not people leaking information or people running our government. Let's take another one. Real quick one here that I've talked about a lot, but I'll do it again because I just think it's such a great website. Uh, this comes from Charles. Charles says, have heard you mention some website that you check for land and properties for sale from time to time. Which website was that? Thanks, and keep up the excellent content. Uh, the website is United Country, U-N-I-T-E-D-C-O-U-N-T-R-Y, unitedcountry.com. Warning, if you're at work right now listening to me and you pull up that website and start searching for properties, especially if you live in the South Central, Southwest area, so Missouri, Arkansas, North Carolina, Louisiana, not so much Louisiana, there's not a lot there, Texas, um, Georgia, all the way up into West Virginia, some upstate New York stuff, anything in there, um, the danger is if you pull that website up and start searching right now, you won't get any work done today and you might get caught by your boss, so be careful with that. Um, let's move into some stuff about Japan now. Kind of wrap up the show with some thoughts about what's going on there. Uh, there's an article that's out today um, on the Washington Times, or as I call them, the Washington Slimes, called Where Are the Japanese Looters? Let me read a little bit of this to you. Nacogdoches, Louisiana, March 14, 2011. The absence of looting in Japan has taken many Western observers by surprise. Maybe because they don't believe in stealing. Hmm? <laughs> Maybe I can just stop. Maybe we don't need to read the article. Maybe I can just put it there. Because they have honor and respect for others. Maybe that's the whole answer. Ah, let's read it. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans experienced looting on a scale that astonished even American cynics. After last year's earthquake, the looting in Chile was serious enough to require military intervention. There was looting in Haiti after its earthquake last year and in England during the 2007 floods. So far, though, there's no looting reported in Japan. Is it really that surprising? Surpri surprising? Is it really that surprising? The politeness, honesty, and orderly behavior of the Japanese are widely admired. A Brazilian friend in the jewelry business, under the influence of severe jet lag, left an unlocked briefcase containing thousands of dollars in cash and hundreds of thousands of dollars in gemstone on a Tokyo commuter train. Well, that was dumb, wasn't it? 
His host talked him out of cutting his wrist and then escorted him to the next station served by the train where the briefcase and his content were waiting for him at the lost and found counter. If stories like this are credible in Japan how unthink and unthinkable in New York, Paris, or London, the question is why. There is a substantial internet chatter on the subject, and the chatter is disturbing. The answer most people seem to settle on is race. Many argue that Japanese homogeneity is a strength, diversity a weakness. The Japanese aren't looting because they're all one big happy culture, and none of the predation that occurs when people of different cultures look longingly at each other's possessions. I'm going to say I don't buy that. Uh, before you argue that tsunami swept all their possessions away, remember that millions of people affected by the quake weren't in the path of the tsunami. That's important for later. A distressing number of writers have noted that there were a few, there are a few black, Hispanic, or Arab people in Japan. As one put it, Japanese do not loot black Americans in Louisiana do. That's fact. How is it racist? Because um, it's not the way it really works, and you're looking at the surface like people that talk about global warming without actually doing any research and that think a graph is evidence. That's how, sir. Uh, a related idea is that Japanese culture is superior to lesser cultures, less inclined to reward people who loot and riot. New Orleans, a largely black city, enough said, some might say. This guy's coming off pretty racist to me. Whether Japanese culture is superior to others is a question of values and perspective. The victims of Japanese atrocities in China might beg to differ. Yeah. I guess so. As might the builders of the bridge over the River Kwai and the comfort woman conscripted from other Asian countries to entertain Japanese troops. I reject the racial explanations out of hand without any evidence of genomic differences yielding significant difference in behavior. Okay, so... To someone raised in a culture that prizes individualism and independence, those virtues almost sound offensive. Yet when they make much more sense in a place like Japan, in a sparsely populated American Wild West, the latter setting the cowboy mentality has a better survival value. The Japanese natural character is shaped by interactions of necessity, environment, and history give it peculiar strengths and weaknesses, just as the French and American characters are shaped. To say that the Japanese aren't looting because they're better or racially monocultured ignores history and ignores very serious problems Japan has faced before its big weekend disaster. Let me just, if you want to read the rest of this guy's article, go ahead. Let me tell you what I think it is. In Japan, there's a very high sense of honor. And it's a cultural thing, not a racial thing. It's just how the culture evolved. And honor dictates that if something belongs to someone else, you don't take it because that's freaking dishonorable. And have the Japanese committed atrocities in the past? As the article mentions, you look at what they did to the Chinese, yeah. You look at what they did in Korea, yeah. Okay, yes. So it's not like they're morally superior, but this sense of honor dictates that you're not going to steal from somebody else, especially as long as you still can survive. And I think this is what people don't realize yet. Japan is not Haiti. It's a very technologically advanced, very prepared society. That's another thing. We keep hearing about how prepared the Japanese are and were. And to a large degree, they were. And they are. So what you're seeing in Japan is two things. Honor and preparation preventing undue rioting and looting. And those are the two things that are holding that back. And then the other thing is, and this is going to sound so wrong, but I, I need you to understand this. I really do. It ain't as bad as they're telling you. There, I said it. It ain't as bad as they're telling It's horrible. It's awful. The loss of life is incalculable at how big a loss it is to the world. 
But compared to the tsunami that we had in Indonesia, the last loss of life is, is very, very small. The, the, the area directly affected by the disaster accounts for about 1.5% of Japan's GDP. The biggest problem they have right now is trying to figure out how to keep these uh, reactors from going nuclear. And I'm going to stick my neck out. I think that's being exaggerated as well. I think that uh, the nuclear issue there is going to be solved. I think the fail-safes are in place. I think there's going to be some problems. I think there is some radiation leakage, and that's happening. But I think the news is like, lather it up, baby! Let's, oh, come on now! And I'll save the nuclear stuff for a little bit later, but I think it's being done with everything over there. That the news media can't freaking handle it. And they want to report. They want a reporter. They freaking want a reporter with a camera filming some Japanese guy breaking a window and stealing a TV. They literally want it. And it sickens me. And it's why I no longer trust mainstream media. The whole thing can be summed up about the tsunami coming toward America and the whole morning of reporting when this first happened. The idiots on what's that show with Matt Lauer and them, the Today Show. I was watching that because it was one of the few channels we get with a regular antenna up on the mountain. And they were talking about the warnings going off in Hawaii and it's coming for the West Coast. And oh my God, this area of San Francisco is only 40 feet above sea level. It could be underwater from the six-foot wave coming. Yes, the six-foot wave coming. And I understand how tsunamis work. It's a series of waves and it's basically a six-foot rise in the sea level temporarily. It's a giant swath of water, not a single wave. So I get that, but it's only six feet in the area in San Francisco that they kept talking about till I wanted to punch them all in the face. It was 42 feet above sea level. And then the waves got to Hawaii, and they showed the pictures of the waves hitting Hawaii. And it looked like a scene where you're trying to get people to come rent a hotel room. It was like the water was lapping at the shores. They had little lights on it, and it was just, it was a little higher than normal. And then they realized there would be no disaster in the West Coast. They knew this. They knew this. They, they so knew this. But, oh my God, they could not stand it. So then they started bringing experts on, talking about the continental shelf and how the wave could still speed up and possibly grow, completely ignoring the laws of physics. You know, if you throw that rock in the middle of that lake... It makes those concentric circles and they come out and they form these waves. And the further they go, the less energy they have and eventually they peter out. No matter how big that rock is, at a certain distance from the center, those waves have reached a peak and they are going to decline. That doesn't mean that a tsunami out there can't cause massive destruction in the west coast of the United States. It means when it hits Hawaii and Guam and it ain't happened yet, it ain't coming. Please, please, when we talked about WikiLeaks earlier today, please understand that whatever the media tells you, you probably dial it back about three to four pins to get to reality. They want disasters to be worse than they are. It's never enough. It's never bad enough. It's never horrific enough. And if they don't have pictures to shock you, they'll invent a story to shock you. Thousands of people washing up on shore is not enough. No, no, no. Three reactors are a verge of meltdown in tomorrow. They're all going to die. There's a tsunami headed for Los Angeles. No, there's not. Yes, but it could speed up when it hits the it speed up when it hits the continental shelf. They actually said that repeatedly. Matt Lauer said that. 
I wanted to go to wherever the I guess thinker in New York and punch him in the face when he said that. Like he knows. So the big lesson from the tsunami so far: the media is full of shit. I, you probably already knew that. Um, let's take some more stuff on, on the tsunami. So this one comes from Mark, and Mark says, Below is an article discussing people hoarding whatever they can get their hands on in Japan. It's on Fox News. This reinforces what you have said about unprepared people actually making a bad situation worse. There are so many lessons that can be learned from the disaster in Japan. My heart goes out to those people. I look forward to when you have time to do a podcast about this. Well, it's partially today and, and fully later on. Uh, but let me read this. So they're not rioting, but they are hoarding. Panic buying adds shortages after Japan quake. Tokyo canned goods, batteries, bread, and bottled water have vanished from store shelves as long lines of cars circle gas stations and Japan grapples with a new risk set, uh, uh, risk set off by last week's earthquake tsunami and ensuing nuclear crisis. Panic buying. Far outside the disaster zone. Very important to hear that one again. Far outside the disaster zone, stores are running out of necessities, raising government fears that hoarding may hurt the delivery of emergency food aid to those who actually need it. The situation is hysterical, says Tomonoso Matsu, spokesman at instant, for instant noodle maker Nissan Foods, which donated a million items, including its cup of noodles, for disaster relief. People feel safer just by buying cup of noodles. Oh, they do taste pretty good. Uh, the company is trying to boost production despite earthquake damage that closed down its facilities uh, in Irbaranka Prefecture until Tuesday. Uh, the frenzy buying is compounding supply problems from damaged and congested roads, stalled factories, reduced train service, and other disruptions caused by Friday's magnitude 9.0 earthquake off Japan's northeast coast and the major tsunami it generated. Rehendo, the minister in charge of consumer affairs who goes by one name, asked people to refrain from buying items they don't really need. Michael Tata, a 40-year-old Tokyo web programmer, was stunned to find shelves bare at several convenience stores. He gave up and has just been eating out. It's like a joke. Cup noodles, rice balls, snacks, just about everything except sugar hot chips, super hot chips is gone, he said. I can't even find chocolate bars. Isn't that what they used as... Uh uh, like a reward system in, uh, what was the movie in the book, uh, 1984. Remember, it was chocolate. George Orwell's 84, and there was a chocolate allowance that everybody celebrated if it got raised by a gram or two. Um, family Mart convenience store owner Katsu Minimi was expecting small delivery later Tuesday, but said it would have to shut anyway if the electric utility decides to go ahead with proposed three-hour rolling blackouts. I'm really, really worried, he said, blaming hoarding disruption problems, distribution problems, and worries that there might be another quake. Okay, let's let it there. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in Japan, despite being prepared and having a sense of honor. And especially the areas not directly affected by the quake. Here's what happens. People start to think, well, you know, we have enough food for the week, but it could start to get kind of hairy around here. Maybe I should go out and buy a little bit extra. And that's all that they generally go out to do is buy a little bit extra. Well, it doesn't really strike them that the other, you know, 300 million people that live, you know, arm's length away from them in a densely populated area like Tokyo might be doing the same thing. So then they get there and they see their fellow Japanese citizen buying more than they plan to buy and they think maybe I should buy more and it goes into a spiral. And this is what I've always said. Prepping isn't hoarding. The hoarders are the grasshoppers. 
Grasshoppers who are looking at the big green field every day and thinking there's plenty of grass, there's plenty of grass, there's plenty of grass. Then 90% of the grass dies and they're trying to eat all this left and get as much of it as they can before the cold comes and kills them. Well, humans think more than grasshoppers, even though sometimes it feels like we don't. They really do. And when they look around, they realize, they actually understand their plight. And the more competition, the worse it gets. And once they're bare, anything a shopkeeper does bring in goes like that. And it's going to run a cycle. This is, again, the media trying to make it worse than it is. It will run a cycle. The guy who can't find food in the store, what's he doing? He's eating out. The restaurants have lots of food, apparently. And there's street food everywhere in Tokyo, by the way. Great place to go eat street food. If you ever get a chance, you got to go go to Japan, eat street food. Don't be afraid of the nuclear reactor blowing up or tsunami killing you. It's really an interesting city. So there's food. So what's going to happen is all these people that hoarded the food that don't really know why they're they don't even know why. You think they know why they don't. They don't know why they're buying as much as they are. They're just like the people in Texas when like an inch of snow comes to get 17 loaves of bread. They're never going to eat 17 loaves of bread before they go stale. They really don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Well, after about two weeks go by and the situation begins to come more under control and they're looking at all this food in their house, there'll be a glut in supply. Because this is a spike disaster. Unless the nuclear reactors go nuclear, right? Unless that happens, this is a disaster that's peaked and it's already on its downhill. And I'm going to tell you, I think, I think that the Japanese will rebuild everything that happened in Japan before we finish New Orleans and Ground Zero in New York. I think Japan will be back to business as usual before one tenant moves into one office space in the New World Trade Centers. I'll put that on the line. If you want to make a bet with me on that, send me an email. We'll lay a gentleman's bet on that, some kind of bet. I'll take anybody's action on that. And I want I want you now, with all the froth and lather and stuff that have come out of the media, not to belittle the disaster. It's a terrible disaster. I, I, I'm going to tell you, if there's 20,000 people dead, I'm going to be surprised it's not more. When the total thing's over, with how many people are probably washed out and just lost and not found yet. But even with that, I think it's been overdone. And I want to ask you a question right now. Given, given that on September 11th, 2001, we lost the World Trade Centers, and be given that it's March 2011, we basically have two big holes in the ground where there will eventually be buildings. Do you really doubt me when I tell you that? Do you really think I'm wrong? Even though we had a, almost a 10-year head start. They're not even done dealing with the disaster. And I'm telling you, they'll fix their country before we fix a few city blocks in one city in our nation. And I really believe that. And it's not because they're better than us. It's because they're not going to be held back by the bullshit we are. I want to talk about the nuclear stuff a little bit too. I want to tell you what's going on with this nuclear thing. Um, there is a problem, and the people say there's no problem at all are denying reality, and nuclear reactors obviously can be very, very dangerous and kill a lot of people. So there is a risk. But odds are, if the risk that we're being given by the media is a seven, 
The real risk is a two or maybe a one. What is going to happen now is an all-out push by the green movement to get rid of nuclear power altogether. I had a question from a listener today. What do we do about the nuclear radiation that might come over here? Don't even worry about it. Unless one of these things goes freaking beyond Chernobyl, don't even worry about it. Why? Why, you say, should we not even worry about it? Well, because the amount of nuclear radiation released on U.S. soil during nuclear testing in our desert southwest during the 60s was about 1,000 times the amount of radiation produced by the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It happened right here. And we're all still here. And I'm not putting the disaster down. I'm not belittling the disaster. I'm trying to counter the hysteria, the lather, the froth, and the nonsense that your media is giving you right now. Because what do we know about disasters? Prepare in advance, and when they're at their peak, pull back and help where we can and deal with it as we can. And now I want to talk to you a little bit about something that I think people get the wrong opinion of in a time like this, in a disaster like this. And it was true in Chile. It was true in Haiti. It's now true in Japan. People look at these disasters and go, is preparation really worth it? "Ah, I thought this would be good for preparation. In some ways it is, but in some ways that's a blip on the radar. I'll get to that a bit. See, what happens is, People look at this and go, well, if you were where the wave wiped you out and killed you and took you out to sea and you washed up as a body three days later, uh, all the preps in the world weren't going to help you. You're correct. And sometimes there's a disaster like this where it happened relatively close to the shore of Japan. There was almost no time for a warning. Everything shook and then the wave came. And if you end up there, then your troubles are over. That's true. If you're sitting in your house at night sleeping and the roof comes down on you before you even wake up from the rumbling and crushes you dead, you're dead and your troubles are over and you're on to the next realm, whatever you believe that to be. I won't speak about that today at all. But where is the hoarding happening in Japan right now? Is it happening where everybody needs help and help is being rushed in? No. It's happening in the outlying areas where people really weren't affected at all. Except by supply change, power outages, and a mentality of people trying to get something in case something else goes wrong. Panic. So if you were anywhere other than where your troubles are over, then your preps were extremely valuable. And while everybody's running around in the streets of Tokyo... You could sit back in your little Tokyo apartment, look out your window, and watch the chickens run around screaming the sky is falling, wait out the three to four weeks of the cycle, and go back to living your life the way that you want to. Now, I'm not big on urban areas, and I don't like to be in high-density populations, and even though I said visiting Tokyo someday is probably a great idea, I would never want to live in a city like that. It's up there with New York as cities that I like but would never live in. But even there, a little bit of preparation goes a long way. And this is why we prepare. We don't prepare in case we're in the ground zero of a nuclear detonation because then we're vaporized. We prepare more for the aftermath than we do for the disaster. 
And a lot more could have been done by people that are dealing with that right now. And what I want to finish up today is really not about the Tokyo disaster. Or the, it's not the Tokyo disaster at all, is it? It's the Japanese uh, tsunami and earthquake uh, where Tokyo was relatively unaffected. Uh, but here is something to think about at home because we also have a problem with times like this where we start looking, oh, wow, look over there, look what happened. And, of course, the news media is like, well, there was one down in Chile and there was one over here and there was one, and there's four corners to the ring of fire and the only one left that hasn't gone off recently is the west coast of the United States. And we, if we're not living in San Francisco, we sit here and go, wow, those people in San Francisco could have a problem. But what about us? Uh, this is on Canada.com, and I'll provide a link to it today, and it's by Nikki Poulsen. It was sent to me, let me sure I give credit where credit's due, Robert Griswold of Ready Made Resources is the one who sent this to me. Food prices in a world in peril. Higher costs in 2011, is this the blip or an omen of things to come? Doomsayers have for years warned us of coming food shortages, gas shortages, and much higher cost of living all around. 2011 is shaping up to give us a taste of what that might feel like. We start with a shortage of fresh lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, and peppers. We're used to having access to almost any fruit and vegetable we can think of, but that access is a fragile thing. Vegetable crops in Florida, Texas, Mexico were all hit by winter frost at the same time for the first time in 50 years. As a result, we're seeing historic shortages along with historic price increases. The U.S. Department of Agriculture says wholesale prices for many fresh vegetables have doubled since January. Give you a, a, a clue on this. I wanted some fresh peppers for some friends that came up to uh, our place in Arkansas, and I got some re they were beautiful red and yellow peppers to grill. Two fifty a pepper. Two fifty a pepper. Think about that. The shortage is only a short-term problem, barring another round of frost. The next harvest will likely bring things back to normal. That will be sometime in April. So it's not the end of the world as we know it. The crisis in fresh vegetable supply should be temporary, but it is perhaps a harbanger of things to come, a series of shortages that may not be so temporary. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, is warning that a drought in China may destroy their winter wheat crop. <laughs> They have a few billion people, don't they? Uh, they are suffering a winter drought. If followed by a dry spring, they will lose a lot of their wheat crop. In a good year, China is self-sufficient in food production. Let me read that to you again, because we're not. In a good year, China is self-sufficient in food production. One point some six billion, what is it, 1.6, 1.7 billion people, and they can feed themselves. 300 million, and we're a net exporter, of, a net importer of food now. Okay. Um, we'll go back to that. Uh, it's 1.3 billion. I was wrong. Let me get back here. Destroy the week. In a good year, China is self-sufficient in food production. With a population of 1.3 billion, a food shortage in China is going to have an impact on a global supply and prices. Because what they can't grow, they have to buy now. A drought in China will raise global price of staple grain. Over the last few years, wheat has hit all-time high prices because of various weather issues around the world. Australia's drought, Russia's drought, etc. Wheat went up to nearly 60%. Uh, wheat went up nearly 60% last year on the commodity market. Corn went up 87%. Fortunately, the price of rice rose only slightly. Perhaps one thing keeping out 
uh, as out of a global food prices so far. Uh, the FAO says food prices are already at their highest point since tracking began in 1990. The UN food price index is up 34% from last year. The world's food market sits in a fragile balance. A crisis always looms around the corner. Besides the weather, some other factors pushing us into crisis include growing populations, the use of food crops as biofuels, fresh water shortages, rising meat and dairy consumption, and soil erosion. Uh, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. What's the point? The point is, once again, we're looking at a situation where something most Americans took for granted and didn't understand has an effect at a place they didn't expect it to. See, we had this frost. It happened right around the time of the Super Bowl, remember? Yeah, see, here's what happened here in Dallas, and everybody was inconvenienced and worried that their teams might not uh, get enough attendance at the you know, biggest Super Bowl ever, and oh my God, it might affect some interviews or something like that. We got like a quarter inch of snow, and then we got like three quarters of an inch of ice, and then we got like a half inch of snow, and then it melted just a little bit right at the end of the snow, and then it went down to like 15 degrees for like five days. And everything froze solid. We said, oh man, it might interfere with our ability to get an interview with a quarterback or a wide receiver. And what it was actually doing was killing our food. That's what it was really doing. Killing our food in Texas, Louisiana, Florida, and Mexico. Massive amounts of fresh food. And, and if you don't understand the implications, go to a supermarket right now and look for bell peppers. It'll be a great indicator. And look how much they cost. And you, here's what you'll find. Some places you'll find some really great quality at a really high price. And other places you'll find some really poor quality. And other places you'll find nothing. And I'm seeing it even with things like strawberries right now. And I think what we just need to accept is that sometimes you're not going to be able to buy what you want when you want it fresh. Because it's dependent on somebody somewhere else growing it for you. Now, the good news is this particular situation, as the article states, is temporary. Uh, things will go back to normal soon. You'll be able to go out and buy your peppers and, and your cucumbers and all of that good stuff and pay about the price you've been accustomed to paying probably a little bit more. But these bigger shortages in grain that keep coming, you ever notice that now all of a sudden it's not... There's one big drought, and then two years later, there's another big drought somewhere else. It's like, there's a drought here, and then there's a drought here, and there's a drought here, and then there's a freeze, and then there's a drought. Um, do I think that it's any kind of omen or anything? No, I think it's just coincidence, but it really sucks, doesn't it? And we're also at a point where we're like, we've pushed production to a level we never thought was capable, and we've pushed population right along with it. We've never backed off of the population growth of the planet yet. And there's a point at which we're just not going to be able to feed everybody anymore. And there's already people starving. And don't think it can't be you. My other thing is, I'm not really forecasting that you and I are going to starve. But we sure as heck might have to really think more about what we buy and what we eat based on pricing. Running out of water. We're definitely running out of water. We talked about that today. You can think everything is, I mean, the one nation that no one was worried about right now. Right? No, I mean, the one place they said, well, they got it covered was Japan. And not only will the impact be felt in Tokyo, even though they didn't get the direct impact, the impact will be felt in America of this disaster. The economic impact and the emotional impact of this disaster. And what I want to warn you about over the next couple of weeks is going to be prepping will be cool. 
and it will be cool for about oh 15 minutes in 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 the real world, in that timeline, that long term timeline. Don't get caught up in the swell. No pun intended there with the tsunami. Don't get caught up in the swell. Do it because it's the right thing and you know it's the right thing. And I'm going to throw out something here at the end. Please consider helping those folks over there. That's what we do. That's what we do when disaster strikes. As Americans and for those of you in other nations, as, as, as people of the world and as preppers. We are not here to laugh at the grasshoppers. We're here to convert them into ants. We're not here to mock them. And a lot of those people over there aren't grasshoppers. If they were in certain areas, there's nothing they could have done. And from our point of safety, it's time to render aid. So pick a good charity, render some aid, and do something to help. Because that's, again, that's what we do. And the next time you hear some type of stupid statement from somebody in our community like, Well, everybody else can just starve. I got my guns and my buckets of food. Think of that old lady that lives next to you and realize in a disaster, you might be reaching out to help her. I sure shall help if it ever does happen. God forbid that you are. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.